We are glad that you are here in God's house, uh, kicking off the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. I uh, hope you're excited to be here today. I am glad that you're here uh, because it's, it's true. We say it in announcements, uh, and we don't just say it to say it. We say it because we believe it. We believe it's no accident you're here. We believe God is here, uh, and it's an exciting thing to be a part of. I'm also excited. I'm, maybe it's just me. Uh, maybe it's you, but I happen to be a person. I'll just confess this to you this morning. I am one of those people that loves this time of year. Does anybody else love New Year's? Last service, there were like three of us, and it was awesome. We stood together. Okay, four of us at this service. Great. All right. Yes, Christmas is great, and obviously we worship the birth of our Savior, and it's a story that changes everything, and there's ornaments, and there's cookies, and carols, and everything else that you get to be a part of. But there's something about New Year's for me that is so exciting, and I'm still trying to put my finger on it. I mean, maybe it's the fact that 2014 was an absolutely amazing year for us as a church. I mean, for me, it's a great, and not just the church, but with, with my home life, with my family, right? I look at the end of the year, I put everything in two categories. Was it awesome or was it not awesome, right? And a great year is when more things are in the awesome category. And I started looking at 2014, I had a lot of things in the awesome category. And this church, as a church, we did absolutely as well, right? New building, uh, new people, uh, things are exciting, people are having fun. People come to worship here and they have smiles on their faces when they leave. Who would have thought, right? It's absolutely been a fantastic year. But maybe it's also the fact that 2015 is shaping up to be even better. I'm excited about that, and I hope that you, whatever 2014 threw at you, have an outlook of hope, an outlook of expectation, because I think that's really what gets me excited about New Year's. Once a year, and I don't know why it's just this time of year, maybe it's because I have to go through for the for next three weeks, reminder to write 15 on the end of any date that I write. I always, it always takes me like a month to get caught up on that. But there's something about this opportunity to pull out a clean sheet of paper and start a new year. There's something that comes with hope, with expectation, just this idea that maybe this year things can be different. Maybe there's a possibility that things could change. And we're excited here for many reasons. One is, though, that we're turning over the calendar, not just on the actual calendar that everybody uses Right, but our church calendar as well. For the last year, 2014, we were in a season. We take our, our year and we break them down into seasons and we rotate. Sometimes it's a year of the Bible to get to know God better. Sometimes it's a year of community uh, to get to know each other better. Uh, sometimes it's a year to get to know the world around us better and we focus on mission. We do all three of those things all of the time, but at different points, different years, we pick one of those things to kind of dive a little deeper into. So 2014 was a year of roots and renewal. Uh, we wanted to dig our roots down deep into God's word and to experience the renewal that only he could bring. This year, new theme, back to basics. Everybody say back to basics. Back to basics. Back to basics. That's exactly what we're doing this year. We're taking time to make the space to get to know the God of the universe, to get to know the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, as we take a whole year, and I'm kind of freaked out about this as a preacher. I don't know quite how to do this yet, but it'll be fun. This year, we're going to go through four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with this idea of getting to know God, getting to know our Savior. And I'm sure we'll bounce around to other books of the Bible because Jesus kind of is throughout the whole story, and the whole story points to him. But we're really excited about this opportunity to get to know God because getting to know God is a good thing. Amen? 
He's a guy who's worth getting to know. And the Apostle Paul talking about Jesus Christ. And if we want to get to know God, how do we get to know God? By looking at the life of Jesus Christ. Everything we need to know is in his life that's found in these Gospels. And as the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3, is talking about getting to know Christ, he happens to agree. I want to read this for you here this morning. And if you want, if you want to get comfortable, you can close your eyes, you can relax. I want you to soak this in. Okay? Don't go to sleep, but soak this in. This is what the Apostle Paul has to say about knowing Jesus Christ. Paul says, everything else, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For Paul, it's a priority. And he's got all the accomplishments, he's got all the qualifications to be a great spiritual leader, but this is what he says about knowing Jesus. For his sake, I discard everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And for me this year, Philippians 3.10, it's kind of the theme verse, the verse I feel like, the path that God's got me on this year. Paul says, I want to know Christ, and I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to read that again. Paul says, I want to know Christ and experience this mighty power that raised him from the dead. Now, I don't know what your New Year's resolution is. Maybe it's uh, to work on your stamp collection and make it even more legit and uh, bragging rights at cocktail parties. I don't know. Maybe you want to work on your rubber band collection or maybe you've got something like this in there, right? There's lose 10 pounds, be nice to my kids, all those kinds of things as well. But what about getting to know Jesus this year? What does God have in store for us as we take the time to dig in, to make space, to get to know God? That's what we're doing. We're going back to the basics to make space for this. Now, some of you might be sitting here this morning, you might be asking, okay, so I want to get to know this heavenly being. How on earth do I do that? What does that look like? And I would just say, well, how did you get to know the person you came in here with this morning? And maybe you, you came by yourself. How do you get to know the person that you love and care about the most in your life? How, how do we do those things? Why would it be any different with God? It's the same thing. You can't always see him, but you can still talk with him, right? You can still, still spend time walking with him, doing life with him, putting your, him, yourself in a position to be able to trust him, Man, when I was dating my wife and, uh, you know, we, we were just getting to know each other, I would have loved to have everything I needed in this nice, neat package to get to know her. But it took time. And the same is true in our relationship with God. We want to get to know Jesus better. Everything we need to know about God, we can learn through looking at the life of Jesus Christ. And so that end today, to that end today, we kick off our first sermon series of the year as well. It's called Meet Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I think Jesus is a pretty cool guy and he's worth getting to know a little bit better. These next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus from some different angles, some different stories. Some you've definitely probably heard of. Others, maybe not so much. Even today's is a little bit new. We want to get to know Jesus though. That's what we're about this year. And we're starting today with the gospel of Matthew. So if you brought your Bibles this morning, if you've got one, uh, you can uh, flip it open to Matthew chapter one. We're going to spend almost our whole time here today, uh, and look at that, and if you are stuck in the middle of a row, you can wave to the person on the end of the row. We have Bibles uh, around the room here somewhere if you want to grab one of those. I encourage you to have one as we go on this 
Because we get to know information about Jesus, but we also do much more than that. We're going to put it into practice this year as a church community. But as you uh, flip to uh, Matthew chapter 1, I just want to let you know Matthew's the beginning of the New Testament. It's the part where we turn the page, move from looking back to before Jesus' time to when Jesus was here, and then the rest of the New Testament kind of walks us through the implications of, the, of all that took place in the Gospels, right? We're starting with the first Gospel. It's called Matthew because it was written by a guy named Matthew, and we'll talk about him in a little bit in a little bit. Now, if you're new to the faith, you're just starting to get serious about studying the Bible, you might be asking the questions, what is Gospel? What does that word even mean? It means good news. We happen to believe the Bible isn't just good news, it's great news, it's life-changing news. But one of the other questions people often ask me when they're first getting started in Bible study is, okay, so you've got these four Gospels, right? And some, they all have different stories of Jesus, but when I look at them, they're all different. They're all a little bit different. Some of them are way different. Why four? How can I trust this? What, why should I pay attention to this? And when people ask the question about why four, why are they different? It's funny, and it always throws them for loop, but I start telling stories about my kids, I start telling a story about a photo shoot I did with my daughter, Gwyneth, when she was six months old. We just thought, you know, we're new parents. We're really excited to have this young child in our home. You know what? It's Easter. Let's dress her up like a bunny and take pictures of her, right? Yeah, I can tell you're all as riveted as I was when my wife brought the idea to me, right? But it was awesome. And it was awesome. So we, I mean, I think they turned out pretty good. Why don't you take a look and tell me what you think? Ready? One, two, three. Oh, isn't she precious? Yeah, you would never know that she's my most rebellious child, right, in that picture. She's six months old, and she's adorable. And what's interesting about this, though, is as we begun to go through this photo shoot, there was this variety. When I got the photos back, countless different pictures, countless facial expressions in different moods. You might be asking, why on earth am I telling you about the Gospels? Why am I relating it to my daughter, Gwyneth? It's not the cuteness factor, right? Did you know Jesus... At one point in one of the Gospels, it says, made, found some stuff in the temple and made a whip to drive people out of there because they weren't living out God's commands in the way. I mean, they were crooks. They were commandeering the temple, right? Jesus isn't always cute. My daughter is. Jesus isn't always cute. No, it's because as we took these photos, there were some different sides to her we saw. And the truth is, it's kind of the same with the Gospel. So this one, I just said she's kind of ambivalent, right? I titled this one, well, Dad, I guess I'll let you take my photo. All right? Next one. Oh, look, an egg. That's my creative title for this, right? And I think this sums her up to a T. She's so curious. She's always getting into stuff. Any given day, one billion questions. That's how many questions of hers I answer. Number three. This is the tough girl look. Uh, don't mess with me, punk. All right? That's Gwyneth in her nice pink diaper and uh, bunny ears. All right? Number four. Joy. This is Joy standing behind. I can still hear her giggle. I still remember that moment, right? In stage five or number five, right? Why did you make me do this? That's, that's the caption for that one, right? So you might be asking, why am I sharing this with you when it comes to the Gospels, right? Let me ask you a question. Which one of these photos captures my daughter's personality? The answer is all of them. And that's exactly the same point with the Gospels. Just as Gwyneth's personality is multifaceted, it's the way that God has made her, the same is true with Jesus Christ. 
You can't just read one little story. You can't even just get one person's perspective on the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and expect to get the full picture. Even with the four Gospels, there's still so much more that could have been recorded that we'll just have to wait someday to have God tell us the stories himself. We can spend an entire year getting to know Jesus. And we still aren't going to know everything. We only have part of the picture. But the same thing is true with the Gospels. We need each of them because each of the authors, as they've experienced God's grace in their own life, as they've experienced different things, they put it through different lenses to look at. For example, you got Mark who, who writes really long yet intense stories and jumps from thing to thing to thing to thing. You've got Matthew who is more like a television reporter and is letting you know all the details and kind of putting it together, right? You've got Luke who's not even Jewish, who's putting a whole new expectation on Jesus that everybody is invited. Then you've got John who's like some of the surfers I met when I lived in California. I can just picture him saying, yo, man, in the beginning was the word, right? (laughs) You've got these different perspectives, these different people coming together, which is why we say we've got four Gospels offering four answers to one question. Who is Jesus? And it's the question that Matthew wants to begin to answer for us today. So we're going to dig in. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 1. I know you got out of bed this morning. You were just so excited to come here because I know you got out of bed this morning. And the thing you wanted to do is you wanted to study the genealogy of Jesus Christ, right? Am I right? Anybody want to study Jesus' family tree? I will just be honest with you. As a preacher, I had a really hard time this week. I'm thinking, how can I make this funny and engaging and help you stay awake during... I mean, it's just a list of names, right? But when we dig in and look in, we begin to see, I think that God has much more for us. One other side note before we get into reading Matthew 1, and you can look at it here, uh, you can start to look at the list of names and and the the thing that Matthew chooses to launch with, I just got to ask you a question, true or false? And those of you that have gotten up here and read scripture, which we love, and you can volunteer, anybody can volunteer to be a part of our scripture reader team, true or false, is getting up and being assigned to read all of Matthew chapter one, a scripture reader's worst nightmare? (laughs) True or false? If maybe you've been sitting out there in the chairs, you've never even thought twice about it. But I will tell you, even as I was preparing for this, I thought, oh my gosh, I just can't imagine reading this whole thing. That's why we had a little bitty uh, Bible reading text this morning. I mean, just look at this list. I mean, sure, it starts off easy, right? This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham, there's a name I can get, right? David, Isaac, Judah, we're going to mix it up a little bit. Verse uh, three, we've got Hezron. Right? Verse 4, we start getting a little tricky. Everybody say, Aminadab. See, you can do this. You got this down, right? All right? And we keep moving on. Different things. Jehoshaphat, right? And then you come to verse 12. Verse 12. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakin, uh, would be my best guess, was the father of, all right, S-H-E-A-L-T-I-E-L. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I practiced this like 100 times last night because I didn't want to accidentally swear in front of everybody, right? Sheel, TL, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I was a little nervous about it, right? But that person was the father of Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. 
Now, I want to let you know that's available if you're trying to name a child right now. All right? You can put that on your list. Nothing says holiday loving like Zerubbabel. So, all right? No, this is some tricky reading, pronunciation. But here's the thing that hit me even harder this week. And maybe it's just me. I realized this week, I mean, God really taught me something through this process, right? As modern day readers, if you're looking at this genealogy, like it just doesn't seem to make any sense, right? And maybe, again, it's just me, but any speech class, any college writing or high school writing class, English class I took, they said, whenever you're starting out to communicate something, you've got a group of people, I was always taught to start with a hook, right? Start with something that's going to reach out and grab people, get them excited, get them engaged. And I got to be honest, I'm, I, when I look at these names, it couldn't be more the opposite. If I'm really being honest, for most of my life, when I've read this part of the Bible, I just skip the names. I just said, well, okay, somebody wasted some time on that, but okay, I'll look at it, whatever, right? I mean, none of us get excited about reading genealogies, and that was me going through it. I mean, I didn't think this chapter even got going until verse 18 when Jesus or when Matthew turns the page about who Jesus is and says, the Messiah, this is how he was born. That is until I began to look closer. And I began to dig in and understand what's really going on. You see, Matthew is Jewish. I am not. There's a big, there's a big gap there that needs to be overcome. He's writing to a Jewish audience. I'm not part of that. And he's writing to tell the world that Jesus wasn't just some ordinary guy but he's the king of the universe. He's the one that they've been waiting for, the one to be worshiped. In other words, he's the Messiah. And that's the message that nuances Matthew from the rest of the gospels. It's all about the Messiah, the promise being fulfilled, that the one that they've been waiting for. And here's what I didn't know. First century Jewish readers, they don't need to wait till verse 18 to get what's going on here. They pick it up in the names, right? You got Abraham, you've got David, you've got talk about an exile all things that get first century Jews' attention. Whoa, something big is going on here. This is not just any name. This is a name that if you show up at a restaurant, it's probably going to get you in, in the door a little bit quicker, a table sooner, right, than the average person. Any Jewish reader in Matthew's time would find this list of names impressive, compelling, and they would be engaged to read more. I mean, according to what the scholars are saying, this is a big deal that Matthew starts this out like this. And I come to find out that's because Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't need to go take my college reading class or writing class at UNI. He knows exactly what he's doing. When it comes to writing and literary and structure and arranging things so words jump off the page at people and there's double meaning and all this stuff, he's not just a writer. He's an artist. He's the most structured, the most skilled of this of all of our gospel writers as well. And as you read through this and look at this, is, you begin to understand this list is transformed. It's not an accident. He's intentionally arranged the entire list of names to get 42 exactly, which is three times 16, right? No, it's not three times 16, it's three times 14. Thank you. I'm glad you're paying attention, right? 42 names. Some have been purposely left out. Some have been purposely brought in to be able to give Matthew the ability to make the point that he wants to make, that Jesus is Lord. And verse 17 unlocks all of it. This is what it says. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. There's three chunks. 
But he isn't just listing names, he's telling a story. He's telling the story of God's people. Again, people are going to look at this if they're first century Jews and they're going to say, that's me. I'm connected to this guy. And in the process, he's revealing that Jesus isn't just some ordinary guy. Jesus is royalty. But to make sure that we get this understanding, Jesus isn't just part of some family, right? It's the royal family. He's not just part of some royal family, but he's the culmination of this whole story that God has been telling for centuries. Matthew arranges these names into three groups of 14, which could also be construed as six groups of seven. Seven was and still is one of the most symbolic, powerful numbers. Where else do we see that in Scripture? Right? On the seventh day, God rested. Creation took seven days. We still talk today about lucky number seven. So isn't it interesting that Matthew goes out of his way to list Jesus as the beginning of the seventh group? He's saying Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the fulfillment. Seven is a biblical number for completeness. Matthew is going out of his way to make sure that we get the message that this Jesus guy is a big deal. He, gets, he wants us to get this message that, that Jesus, this guy he's writing about, is the savior of the world. He's writing to these people who have been waiting for centuries. Remember, the last 14 generations are from exile until now. That's 400 years God's people have been waiting for a savior. And if we're honest, if we look back at 2014, we still live in a world in need of a savior. I came across the photo as I was kind of looking over some recap uh, articles online this week, and this is the one that struck me more than anything else, right? I mean, we had a fantastic year as a church, but if you look at the news, 2014 has been a year of conflict, protests, right? And not just in our country, around the world. There's even something going on in Haiti right now, right? Hong Kong, you've heard about it. Around the world, there's wars that are going on. We live in a world that is crying out need of a Savior. What an interesting juxtaposition, right? An interesting arrangement to have season's greetings above an armed police force. What a picture of the world that we live in and this resounding cry we hear from the people and the world around us that we need a Savior, And that's what Matthew's doing. He's shouting it from the rooftops. He's giving us this message. Jesus isn't just some guy. He's the hope of the world. And as his church, we get to follow in his footsteps. And if that isn't enough, the way that he's grouped these into these three chunks of the story are telling the story that Jesus isn't just some new kid on the block. He's been around for a long time. Abraham is the first chunk, right? Founding father filled with promise that life will be good, that his descendants will be a great nation, that God's people would be blessed to be a blessing, which eventually fast forward to David, who's a king who gets even more promises from God, that his kingdom will expand, that will never end. But notice God doesn't say how, right? But they have their expectations, and that's when the Babylonian exile comes along, when Israel is captive. All these things that they were promised, they think are gone forever. And yet even in the darkest moments, 
the prophets are there whispering about Israel's plan, God's plan for this country to have a hope and a future, that the Messiah would come and set people free. And again, by wrapping up this list with Jesus, Matthew is putting an exclamation point on this whole message. It's him. The time of waiting is over. In other words, and I've always wanted to say this in a sermon, the eagle has landed, right? The waiting is over. It's time for the party to begin. The celebration can launch because this isn't just good news, right? Not just for first century people, but for you and I. It's great news. It's news that's worth celebrating. It's, it's an idea that if this story is true, it changes literally everything about the way that we live our lives. And Matthew's gospel is centered around this whole point. That's why Matthew wrote it. He wrote it because he didn't want us to be in this situation where everybody else knows something and we do not. You ever been in that awkward moment, that awkward situation where, man, it would have been nice to know that five minutes ago, right? Where everybody's kind of operating under a certain set of circumstances and you just suddenly get this shock, this surprise to, to learn some unexpected news. I was thinking about that this week and I couldn't help but come up with a funny example. I couldn't get Jim Carrey's character in Dumb and Dumber, Lloyd Christmas, out of my head, right? You know Lloyd, he's not exactly all there. He likes to roll his own way, right? Well, he's uh, on a certain mission to return a certain briefcase to a certain lady in Aspen, Colorado, after they rode the minibike and got there, when he gets some unexpected news. Don't worry so much about the news. Take a look at his reaction and see how it compares to the way that you understand and appreciate this message that Matthew is trying to get through to us. Let's take a look. I know some of you walking in this morning, you want to say, we landed on the moon. No, maybe not, right? But what happens? I mean, that clip gets me every time because I just think, what must have it been like for the cells in his brain, Lloyd's brain, to connect the dots and think, no way. That's awesome, right? It's something unexpected. It's, it's something that he didn't see coming. But it begs the question for us this morning as we are embarking on this journey of getting to know Jesus and diving deeper into this good news that we just spent the last few weeks celebrating as part of our Christmas celebration, right? What do you do? How do you react? What happens inside of you when you get great, unexpected news? Do you celebrate? Do you scream? Do you shout it from the rooftops? I mean, we know what Lloyd does, right? He's a little excited that the moon is not made out of cheese. Like, we actually got up there in Atlanta, and you can talk about the conspiracy if you want, uh, whether or not we actually land on the moon. You can figure that out later, right? But he's excited about that. It's incredible news, and he's not afraid to let the world around him know it. I mean, thank goodness they hung that newspaper and framed it right there, right? Otherwise, Lloyd would have no idea. Poor guy, right? But what about you when it comes to Matthew chapter 1? When you think about the gospel, does it seem like good news to you? Is this just something you read in the storybook? Or is it part of your story? Is it just good news? Is it great news? Is it just kind of okay news? Matthew's writing to the world to let us know the time has finally come. That when it comes to the Old Testament and you add Jesus to the story, things add up. And then the dots are connected. 
He's letting us know the party can finally start. The Messiah is here and things have changed, yet not in the way that probably anyone expected. I'm sure there have to be people, there had to have been people first century, because there are still today people that say, this Jesus guy, he's just a nobody. He's just prophet, right? He wasn't the son of God. He was, if God was going to come back, he would have done it in a much bigger, a much better, a much easier way. He's not the Messiah. He doesn't fit our expectations. But when we look at first century life, there were incredible expectations for this Messiah. 400 years they've been waiting. We get impatient after like five minutes, right? They've been waiting and they've been waiting. The prophets have spoken. And yet nothing has come until now. And so people are skeptical. They have these huge expectations, but they want to know, even John the Baptist. And if you have your Bibles, flip to Matthew 11 if you want to follow along, right? Jesus has been working around the area. He's been healing people. He's been teaching. He's been doing all these amazing things, and the buzz is beginning to build. And finally, John the Baptist, who's in prison, he's hearing all these things, and he finally sends his disciples with a question. And they get to Jesus, verse 3, chapter 11, and this is their question. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? You see, when it comes to God's work in our life, when it comes to us understanding Jesus the Messiah, but the impact of that, sometimes our expectations can begin to get the better of us. But there's incredible expectation around this. Are you the one we've been expecting? If we've learned nothing else from reading the Christmas story, from worshiping the God who showed up as a baby in a manger, if we've learned nothing else this last year as God has put together this building almost miraculously, it should be this, that God moves outside of our expectations. Far greater, far more unexpected and cooler, to be honest, than anything that we could come up with on our own. Matthew wants us to remember that, that God's going to surprise you. He's always got a curveball ready to throw your way. But not just that, also that he's been doing so for a very long time, which is why I believe that Matthew, in his genealogy, throws us another curveball as well. Did you notice anything else interesting as you read through those verses? One of the things that I noticed that for sure a first century Jewish person would notice is it's not all men. It's not all men. There are some names that have been planted in there in parentheses of all things in our English translations, noted that they were off to the side, to kind of grab our attention, to say, see, God doesn't always do things according to the way that we think it should be. Four times in there, you've got women's names, which are all the stories that come through the most unexpected circumstances. You see, Matthew's getting ready in chapter two to tell the story that a baby is going to be born to a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think because he didn't want everybody to think he packed up his belongings and moved to crazy town, he had to put some other things in there to loosen us up a little bit to say, wait, you think you know what God's about to do, but you have no idea. It's why he puts this in there to tell the whole world about this. He uses the stories, Judah treating his daughter-in-law as a prostitute, Tamar, that's in Genesis, Boaz being the son of a Jericho prostitute, Rahab, David committing adultery with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. These are all part of the family tree, the story that brought home the Savior of the world. It's almost like Matthew is saying, 
If God can work through these ways, watch what he's about to do now. I said it once, I'll say it again. If we've learned nothing else this year, 2014, it's that God moves outside of our expectations. God loves, and I think the Holy Spirit does too, loves keeping us on our toes. And he's been doing so for a very long time. He did it in the Old Testament. He did it in the New Testament. And he's still doing it around here in this church today. What about you? Has God taken your breath away sometime this past year? Are you excited to see if God will do that in 2015? It's New Year's, right? And depending upon what you've experienced this last year, you may be pumped about a new year. You may be terrified of a new year. Either way, good or bad, we all walk into 2015 with expectations, with things that we want, we long for God to do, or things that we just want to forget and never experience again. What's your expectation for this new year? Did you leave room? Maybe you've been working on resolutions. Did you leave room for God to move when you think about, is that even part of your imagination? The way that you've structured your life, is it structured in such a way where you need to know Jesus, where you need to get to know him better, to trust for him to provide? Do you believe that God will do what he says that he'll do? I want to kind of close things up here today with yet another video that gets us thinking about this year. Whether we're excited or terrified, 2015, it's going to come. It's already here. So how are you going to prepare and what is it that you're hoping that God will do? What are your expectations? Let's take a look. God is with you wherever you go. And because of that, we have the ability to be strong and courageous. But we don't know how to do that unless we've taken the time to get to know Christ, unless we've built this relationship with him where we learn to trust him, where we understand God's character, we understand this idea that for centuries he's been moving throughout time and history, changing people's stories left and right. It's time to get to know Jesus, and this has direct implications for the way that we live this next year. And I just think as we get started on 2015, what a great way not just to not just to talk about expectations, but to really get some of those out and and begin to think about what it is that God wants to do. But also, what a great time to make sure we remember who God is. And as we remember who God is, who we are. So we're going to do two things. One, I want to read you Ephesians 3. Just a little snapshot about this amazing God that we have. About this amazing news that Matthew has written to tell us about. We're also going to spend time in confession. Getting, I mean, it's absolutely possible for us to start 2015 with a clean sheet of paper to let go of the past, to move forward, and to celebrate the goodness of God. But Ephesians 3, Paul is writing the church in Ephesus, and I think he's just trying to rattle their cage. He's been, he's been sharing the gospel with them. He's been telling them about the good news. And I got to think as he's reading this, as he's writing this letter to this church, he just gets excited. He's been telling them about the fact that they have unconditional access to God, that God is on their side, that he's in their corner. No, no matter what the world throws at them, they are not alone. And this is what he writes, Ephesians 3, starting in the 14th verse. He says, when I think about all this, 
I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts and you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love truly is. May you experience the love of Christ that is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. And verse 20 is where I think it really hits home for us this year. Paul says, now all glory to God, who, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish what? Infinitely more than we might ask or think. One of my favorite translations says, infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. What does God want to do in your life this year, 2015? What are the expectations that we get to carry in, not have to, but get to carry into this year? It's that God is with us and is willing to provide love with us that's greater, that's bigger than anything we can even ask for, we can think of, or that we can imagine. And the response to that is to give Him praise. It's to worship. What if this year isn't just our year? What if it's God's year? What if it's His? What if it's time to go back to the basics? What if it's time to keep things simple? What if it's time to go back to Philippians 3 and Paul's desire to know Christ and to experience the power of His Spirit? That sounds like a pretty good year. And that's where we're going this year. It's time to meet Jesus. It's time to get to know ourselves. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me? As we transition to communion, like I said, part of getting to know God is getting to know us and who we are. And one of the ancient practices we have for that as a church is called confession. And no, we don't have a booth. You get to go in and you get to confess to somebody uh, you can do that if you want. You can confess to each other if you want. Uh, but as Lutherans, we tend to do this corporately because we're all in this together as part of God's family. Nobody in this room is perfect. And yet one of the, the many things we have in common is that we are all in need of God's grace. So I want to give you just a moment to think through, not just, not just today, not just the last week, but all of this last year, to think about the things where maybe your plans were different than God's and you kind of went your own way. Things, maybe you fell a little short. Maybe you hurt somebody. Maybe you made some mistakes. What we want you to know is that through the gospel, through this good news, your sin is as far as the east is from the west, separated from you. It's no more. So let's just take a little bit of time to think through this year and to, to confess those things that honestly are broken. And then when that time is wrapped up, we're going to go old school Lutheran on you all today. And uh, we're going to put a group confession up on the screen. And I'll say the words, most merciful God. And in the bold after that, we all jump in together and come together as one body united in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's spend some time with the Lord. God, we come to you this morning. We, we know that we're not perfect. 
And God, we know that even our best could be considered filthy rags compared to you and the splendor of your character and your majesty. So God, we invite your presence here as we confess, God, that we don't have it all together. Lord, that we need you. God, we invite you here. Most merciful God, we confess that we are captive to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.